When I left the uh, prayer meeting that we hold on Fridays, what I heard in my spirit from the Lord is, wake up. Time, this is the time to wake up. And that's what our, I didn't, I didn't share that with our sister, but that's what she just prayed. Start off, Lord, we need to wake up. Well, we're in the Beatitudes. Have you started memorizing the Beatitudes, mighty chance? Matthew 5.3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs the kingdom of heaven. Today, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. I want to begin this morning by asking you this question. Where do you go for comfort? Where do you go for comfort? You ever heard of comfort food? Surely you have. Sometimes we go there. Venison barbacoa fried tacos. I promise you'll be slain in the spirit if you have just one of them. Good stuff. Craft coffee or fried cheese curds with a double hopped West Coast IPA. Old school A&W root beer float. 25 ounce marbled ribeye, coarse salt on top, slab of Irish butter, little scotch on the side, and maybe twice baked potato and a Caesar salad. Not a good time to say about. Or maybe a corn dog if you're below four years old, okay? All right. We go to food and drink sometimes for comfort, right? And sometimes, quite frankly, in excess and sinfully. But where do you go for comfort? Do you go to the comfort, if you're married, to that of marital intimacy? Or in the words of the writer of Proverbs, Solomon, do you go into the arms of a strange woman or a strange man? Do you go to pornography? Do you go to a thick velvet blanket on a warm couch with your fireplace crackling and a binge on Netflix? To movies, to music. Do you go, do you go to a trip like the Florida Keys, Florida Keys dead of winter? I tell you what, I must be getting old because that has never sounded good to me. But when I was thinking about that this morning, that sounds really good. I'd love to be in the Florida Keys for a week right now. We could go on and on with answers, could we not? And some of those answers are actually legitimate means of comfort when they are used judiciously, appropriately, and in moderation. Some of those things are just downright illegitimate no matter how much you have, it's sin. Maybe you add, added some answers when I asked that rhetorical question. Maybe, maybe somebody here even went with a spiritual answer. You said, I go to God. I go to prayer. I go to the Word. And by the way, you can never do that excessively, so drink away, okay? But I wonder if anyone went to this answer. When I need comfort, I go to mourning. Because Matthew chapter 5 and verse 4 says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. We are in, as I said, a series through the Beatitudes called Life in the Kingdom. And in our introductory message two weeks ago, we looked at this reality that 
those who have experienced the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit and trusted Christ and been birthed into the kingdom now have in their hearts, at least in seed form, a desire to increasingly reflect these kingdom characteristics. And in fact, I shared, we are to pursue them. We're responsible for that as kingdom citizens. And as we pursue them, we're actually pursuing our very own, you guys remember the word? Makarios. You have to go back and listen to the message to get that. Last week, we started off with beatitude number one. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And what we saw is this, that what we need to develop throughout the course of our life is an utter sense of our spiritual bankruptcy in ourselves. That we need to feel our spiritual destitution again and again and again so that destitution leads us to spiritual desperation so that we increasingly develop the reflex of moving from self-reliance, thank you, Kevin, to God-dependence. You will never be able to take on beatitude number two, blessed are those who mourn, without first learning, blessed are the poor in spirit. You see, the beautiful thing about these beatitudes is they are actually not disconnected. They are rungs in a ladder. And aren't you glad God doesn't start off with blessed are the pure in heart? That's like nine feet high. That would be like the first rung nine feet high. Or he doesn't start off with blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness. sake. That's like 15 feet high. Now he meets us where we're at. Blessed are the poor in spirit. And today, blessed are those who mourn. And we're going to look at three things. Number one, what exactly this mourning is. Number two, what this mourning brings. And then we're going to talk about statues and sensitivity. That should be a lot of fun. Helpful stuff, I think. So number one, what is this mourning that he's talking about? And like I had to last week, I think I need to peel away a few layers of what this morning is not. The kind of morning that he is talking about in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 4 is not natural morning. What is natural morning? Natural morning is the morning that people experience when they, when, they, when they go through a loss. They lose something big or specifically they lose someone big, someone they love. Now, I say most people because some people are so cauterized in their depravity that they don't even wince much when they lose a loved one. But for most humanity, it's universal. There is great weeping and mourning when you lose a loved one. That, that is, that's good and that's right. When you lose a loved one, you, let me tell you, are quite broken. And you know what? God does comfort that kind of mourning, doesn't he? You flip down to the book of Revelation when he takes out that divine Kleenex at the end of the age age, and he wipes away every tear, it will include the tears we experience because of natural mourning because it says death will be no more. But that's not the kind of mourning he's talking about here. Because there's nothing blessed about losing a loved one. It's a gain for them if they're in Christ. Christ. But that's not the kind of mourning he's talking about. You all with me? Number two, he's not talking about sinful mourning. Do you remember how much Cain 
mourned and had a pity party when God accepted his brother's offering Abel's but not his. You remember, he, he was mourning. He, he was a mourner. And of course, we learn from that story that sinful mourning that's not unchecked leads to greater sin. He offs his brother. So when we're talking about sinful mourning, we're talking about the kind of mourning people experience when they lost a sinful relationship and they long for it. Or they lost the ability to pursue or do a certain sin that was a pet sin in their life and they mourn the fact that they can't do that stuff anymore. Now, it is one thing to find yourself mourning a sin you used to practice. Almost every believer has, let's be honest, right? But a person who does that says, whoa, what in the world am I doing longing for that past whatever? That wasn't right, God. Give me grace to see it for what it is, wickedness, to hate it and to turn your direction. But it's an entirely different thing to pine away in sinful mourning unchecked. It's a bad thing, but it's, not the kind, it's clearly not the kind of mourning he's talking about here. Then there's something called selfish mourning. Selfish mourning can mourn over the right things, sin, but for the wrong reasons. Namely, I got caught. <laughs> or I don't like the consequences to my life of being caught in my sin. We call that cookie jar repentance. Every parent has an idea of what that might be as they catch their child reaching the hand into the forbidden cookie jar. They're crying because they were caught. Now, I, I want to be very careful here. Let's be honest. A lot of times, and probably most times, genuine repentance, which is what we're going to talk about, real mourning does begin with the selfish variety. You remember David? It did for him. David sleeps with Bathsheba, and then to cover his adulterous impregnating tracks, he has her husband off in combat. At that point, his repentance is only selfish. Now, we'll see later how that becomes spiritual repentance. And I, I do want to ask you this question. How would you even know the difference? I mean, I'm repenting over a sin. How would I know if my repentance is selfish, right, or whether it's actually spiritual? I would like to, you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. And I would invite you to come back and study this passage in some degree of detail. But I just want to quickly walk you through 2 Corinthians 7, verses 10 through 12 or 13. Here's the difference. For godly grief, and that's what we're talking about, produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces what? Death. He goes on to say, for see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. What kind of earnestness? Earnestness to really now turn from that sin and walk in righteousness. In fact, that's what he goes on to say. But also what eagerness to clear yourselves. I don't want that to be me. What indignation, anger against the sin that, that they did, that they're turning from. What fear, fear of going back to that sin. What longing, longing for what? Longing to walk with God. What zeal, what punishment. At every point, you proved yourselves 
innocent in the matter. Again, not innocent in the sin they had to repent of, but innocent in the repentance. In other words, true grief, true mourning. And you could read through that passage, and I would invite you to study that as you think of repentance in your life and those around you, what does real repentance looks like, look like? And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. What is the mourning described in chapter 5, verse 4? I, re- I repeat again, it is not, it is not natural mourning. That, that's good, but that's not what it's talking about. It's not sinful mourning. That's bad. It's not selfish mourning that's bad. It is spiritual mourning. What is spiritual mourning? Spiritual mourning has four components. And I don't want to get all all technical here, but I just want to kind of break it down. So I'm going to ask you to summon to your brains all the caffeine that you drank this morning, okay? And stay with me. Spiritual mourning has how many components am I teaching this morning? Four. It has a mental component. Think of your head. It has an emotional component. Think of your heart. It has a volitional component. Think of your will. And it has a Christological component. Think of the cross. So what do I mean? Spiritual mourning in your head says, this isn't right. This isn't good. This is bad. This is sin. You're saying something with your head that that is wrong. But then it hits your heart. It gets emotional. You feel in your soul, wait a second, this is wrong, this is not right, this is bad, this is sin. It begins to hit your heart from your head. And then, if you will, it hits your hands and your feet. You say to yourself, whoa, if this is not right, if this is wrong, if this is bad, if this is a sin, then guess what? I need to turn from it. And then there is the Christological part which says, this is not right, this is wrong, this is bad, this is sin. As I turn from it, I need to turn to Christ. Because he's the only one that can forgive me. He's the only one that can cleanse me. and He's the only one that can empower me to walk in righteousness as God designed me to do. Now listen, only that kind of mourning truly connects a person to Christ. And therefore, only that kind of mourning leads into and produces a life of transformation. That kind of mourning is necessary for conversion. That kind of mourning is necessary for sanctification, for transformation, for changing your life. And I don't expect as you mourn, you're going to remember all four components as if it's a formula. When you're in the mix, it's just a mess. But... Standing out of the mess right now, I'm just trying to say this is what spiritual mourning is going to look like. Now, at this point, I want to invite Colin Smith to the platform once again. I I quoted him last week because this guy is so strong on his commentary on the Beatitudes. And he makes a statement, something to the effect of that we are surrounded right here in this context in America By a faith, in other words, a body of truth, and then our personal response to this body of truth called Christianity, he says, we are surrounded by a faith that has been so gutted that it would be barely recognizable to your average first century Christian. 
I think he makes a good point there. And he goes on to diagnose a two-fold problem with much of modern anemic Christianity, if it's really Christianity, Christianity at all, quite frankly. Now, you've probably heard this, that saving faith or sanctifying faith is like a coin. Have you heard this? It's got two sides, one coin. One side of saving faith is the faith part or the belief or the trust, right? But what's the other side of that coin? Repentance. So saving faith, you trust and believe certain things and you repent. You turn from your sin to God. Two sides, one coin. And he says that we have a deficient view of both sides of the coin. So let's start with the faith or trust or belief side. Colin Smith says we have reduced faith or trust to simply agreeing with and acknowledging certain facts about the gospel. We've made it just a theological thing, just a mental thing. And he reminds us, big deal. James chapter 2, the devil himself believes those facts and knows them to be true, and he ain't saved. And he makes the point, that kind of faith doesn't change a person, because that's dead faith. And only living faith truly connects us to Christ, so that Romans 6, his crucifixion becomes our crucifixion. And Romans 6, his death becomes our death. And Romans 6, his resurrection becomes our resurrection so that we can say, not just as a little baptismal formula, but in point of reality, that we have been raised in newness of life. So if someone is not being changed, were they really connected? It's a fair question, right? Christ, in his mercy and grace, receives us right where we are. But he never leaves us there. He's a pretty good savior. And if you want to talk about a pandemic, there is a pandemic in our era and in this age and in this place of false or empty confessions of faith. And the problem with a lot of people is not that they're carnal, it's that they were never converted. They never really connected to Jesus through living, actual faith. So he talks about how we have emasculated true biblical faith on that side of the coin. The other side is the repentance Repentance, we, he says we have reduced repentance to this, to merely admitting, yes, I'm a sinner, and then repeating a prayer, one, two, three, pray after me. A prayer that is often prayed, frankly, with as much passion or less as you would ordering a pizza with double the cheese. And without an ounce of commitment to turn from the sin that you say you want to avoid its penalty of. You ever heard of A.W. Tozer? He did, he pulled no punches. A.W. Tozer said this, it is my opinion that tens of thousands, 
if not millions, have been brought into some kind of religious experience by, quote, accepting Christ. But they have not yet truly been saved. In his book, The Pursuit of God, you ought to read it. He says, the whole transaction of religious conversion has been made mechanical and spiritless. Faith can now be exercised without a jar to the moral life and without any embarrassment to our old Adamic ego. Christ may be received without creating any special love for him in the soul of the receiver. The man is saved but he's neither hungry nor thirsty for God. That's some strong words, right? I want to be clear. Any believer can commit any sin, right? And if you don't think so, watch out. Again, the example of David, a man after God's own heart who did some grievous things. But I want to quickly say, if anybody tries to assure themselves with the example of David, as they live in sin and do so quite indifferently, they're abusing Scripture and perhaps destroying their soul with a very highly suspect genuineness of their faith. Dogs return to their vomit. Disciples don't. Now, they might have to turn from that vomit a lot in their life, right? But they don't keep lapping it up and saying, well, God gives grace as they drink in that vomit. There are nine words in the New Testament for grief or mourning. You know why? Because life is going to throw you a lot of grief and mourning. Live a little bit, you'll figure that out. But out of all the nine words in the entire New Testament describing grief, mourning, sorrow, the Holy Spirit inspired Paul as he recorded Jesus' teaching to use the most strong term for mourning, the most severe term for grief. It is a term that, that, that in the Greek Greek version of the Old Testament called the Septuagint, used to describe the bereavement Jacob felt when he thought, thought his son Joseph died uh, as he was mauled by wild animals. Remember that story? It's the word used of the disciples in the New Testament as they grieved Jesus' death before he was raised from the dead. This most strong and very severe expression of mourning communicates deep, inner Agony. Lamenting. Man, we cheapen that word lament so much. I'm lamenting with so-and-so. I'm lamenting over this. You ain't lamenting. You might be, but I doubt it. Because this word lamenting talks about your very heart being gripped in pain and anguish. Jesus is saying, blessed are those whose heart is gripped in anguish over their sin. Now, I've mentioned David a couple of times so far, so let me go back to him. When David finally saw his sin for what it was, 
wickedness. And wickedness ultimately that had God as its target. He mourned. He was devastated. You can read about his devastation in two psalms. Anybody know what they are? We call them the penitential psalms. You ought to memorize those as well or familiarize yourselves with them. Psalm 32 and Psalm 51 are the psalms of repentance. There's others, but the most notable ones. And what we see in these two psalms in the greater record of Scripture in the Old Testament is that David manifested true spiritual mourning. So let's try that mourning on us for size. How about we do that? First of all, what was that first component of it? Mental. Repentance that happens in the head, mourning in the head. David got to a point where he called sin, sin for what it was. He stopped, if he was, clearly he he was evading conviction, he stopped making excuses He didn't call it like we like to call it, a mistake. In those twin penitential psalms, he actually calls it a transgression. A transgression is a willful, deliberate stepping over a good, righteous, and holy boundary God has given us for our good and his glory. He willfully stepped over it. He doesn't call it an innocent little slip up. He calls it an iniquity, which in the Hebrew means twisting, a twisting of that which God intended to be good. And he says, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, O Lord. He wasn't saying he didn't sin against Bathsheba and Uriah and the whole rest, but he's basically making the point that what makes sin, sin, is ultimately who it's against and who, it's, who it violates, God himself. Now, how about you? Do you call sin, sin? And, and, and listen, not with the world's changing definitions. All you got to do is watch the news and you'll see all kinds of definitions are being changed, right? But according to God's unchanging truth, no justification No rationalizing, no minimizing, no excusing, and we do this. Religion helps us do this. No comparing. I thank you that I'm not like that other chump the guy said in the temple, right? This is what I do. No comparing. But I did what I did, and I said what I said because it came out of my own stinking heart. Nobody ever makes you sin. Nobody ever makes me sin, though I'll say, well, you, you made me say that. No, you didn't. I, it came out of my heart. Jesus taught that sin comes from within, from our heart. And he's mentally able to say, no, no, I, I sinned. And then emotionally, what does he do? Well, if you read those Psalms, he uses very depictive descriptions of how emotionally that sin was making him feel. He says, my bones... We're wasting away. I don't think that's good. He said, I was groaning all day long. He says, my strength is dried up. How about you? He, he, felt, he finally felt this in. Not right away. I think it started off as selfish mourning before it became spiritual mourning. Where are you in your sin? Do you feel it? 
and ultimately feel it as a violation of the holiness of God. I'm not saying are you wearing designer sackcloth and ashes, but I'm asking you, do you feel it? I don't know why we're almost afraid today of people feeling guilt and shame in a shallow, shallow Christianity of today. I mean, churches sometimes fall all over themselves and they'll put stuff up on their website. This is a guilt-free zone. No, I get it. We don't want to be legalistic. You're not going around judging people. But Jesus didn't die for a guilt-free zone. Jesus died for guilt-ridden sinners. And sometimes you got to feel the weight of that sin before you can truly become guilt-free because he who knew no sin was made to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He emotionally felt it. How about you? So there's the head, mental, the heart, emotional, and then his hands and his feet. He turned from those sins. Now, I'm sure, of course, David struggled with sin like we all do, right? But there's no record that he ever went back to those sins. And while you don't want to make a practice of making points from the silence of Scripture, given how the Scripture lets us know he did those things, I think it would let us know if he did them again. Now, what about you? It's one thing to call something sin. It's even another thing to feel the weight of it. But it becomes true spiritual mourning when you purpose in your heart by the power of the Holy Spirit to turn from that sin. One old preacher said, God has never promised to forgive a sin that you have not purposed to turn from through Christ. Let everyone who names the name of Christ, 2 Timothy 2 and 19, depart from sin. So there was head, there was heart, there was hands and feet. But then there is the cross. David, in an Old Testament kind of way, of course, fled to the cross. Because he uses sacrificial imagery. He says, wash me, right? Cleanse me. Purify me. These are allusions to the Old Testament sacrificial system, slaughtering the blood of a, slaughtering a, a, a bull or goat and then sprinkling the blood on the altar for the cleansing from sin. That's what he's doing. He says stuff like, create in me a clean heart, O God. Now, does your repentance take you back to the cross? Because if, if it doesn't, it's just Judas' repentance. Judas found no forgiveness. Peter, who also denied the Lord, he found forgiveness. He went to the cross. Were you able to say, my goodness, Lord, thank you so much that while I was yet a sinner, you died for me. Thank you, you, Jesus, the just, died for the unjust, me, that I might die to sin and live to righteousness. I just want to ask you, do you truly mourn? Now, I don't want you to get my introduction twisted. There are, there are many legitimate means to find comfort for the many reasons we do experience mourning in this fallen world. And I just like Proverbs, like Proverbs 17, 22, a merry heart is good medicine. A lot of different ways to find relief. But when it comes to your sin, when it comes to my sin, when it comes to dealing with our sin, only mourning in this kind of way will bring you the comfort you desire. Take David, groaning all day long, bones wasting away, you know, all the rest. 
He could have gone down to the Florida Keys. But all the margaritas in the world, all the pina coladas in the world would not stop his bones from groaning. <laughs> would not stop him from wasting away. It might have numbed him for a second, but then it would have been on top of him even more. And listen, all the night out, nights you go out, dine outs, workouts, none of that can give you comfort that your heart desires from the affliction of sin. Now, I have taken way too long, so I'm going to hit fast forward, okay? But I want us to know, what is spiritual mourning? Head, heart, hands and feet, and then cross. Now, what does this kind of mourning bring? I'll just cut to the chase. When true mourning happens, you get comfort. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And specifically, you get the comfort of God's mercy. Now, this is, this is fascinating to me. The Holy Spirit, one of his titles, Holy Spirit is not an it, he, third member of the Godhead. Sometimes we have a duo instead of a trinity. He, he is alive and well as the Son is, as the Father is. The Holy Spirit's called the Comforter. And upon your true repentance, your real mourning, the Holy Spirit in grace applies the work of Christ to you so that your sins are washed away, they're atoned, they're covered, they're taken away. And that's why at conversion, you feel like you're walking on cloud nine. Because literally, your sins were just taken off your back. You, you were on cloud nine, seated with Christ in the heavenlies. It is a beautiful thing. He'd do that for you if you've never turned to Christ. He would do that for you today. The scripture says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. What are you waiting for? He invites you to come. But the reality is, unrepentant sin now gets in the way of a believer's fellowship with the Father. It kind of makes our relationship a bit rancid for a season like it does with another person when there's stuff between you, right? When we have unrepentant sin, it cuts off fellowship with the Father. It's not that he stops loving us. He most assuredly still loves us. It's not that he's not for us anymore. Of course, he's all for us. It's It's not that he's not there. He is still there. He certainly is. But it's just that you can't sense him. You can't sense him. It's almost like way up in the, way up in the sky, the cloud, the, the sun is burning brightly, radiating hotly and all the rest. It's just, it's just streaming sunshine. But there's a big, thick, dark, gloomy cloud keeping that sun from hitting you below. It's separating you from the warmth of the sun. And I've heard people say, who once were so close to the Lord, God seems so far away. That's what's going on there. And some Christians go so long without actually mourning, except for this kind of cheap mourning that we can do, that they get used to it. And they think that a relationship with the living God is just affirming a set of theological propositions about Jesus and sin and life and death and all that. And God, and I talked about this last week, did I not? In that point, God is only a faraway, nebulous, vague, religious concept rather than a near and dear father who we can taste and see that he's good. 
But the glorious truth is, is when you mourn, again, emotionally, I feel the weight of my sin because in my head I'm calling it sin and I'm actually turning from my sin volitionally by an act of my own will to the cross Christologically. And again, don't get caught up on the form. I'm trying to give you the stuff of it. When that happens, here's what happens. The Spirit of God, the Comforter, freshly applies the work of Christ. Not so that you can be re-redeemed or saved again, but so the goodness of your fellowship with the Lord can be restored because there's the application of new mercies. So repentance is not a destination. It's a pathway. It's a pathway to comfort, specifically the comfort of the cross, because mourning is always followed by God's mercy. That's what it does. Now, I'm, I'm going really fast because I want to say this last thing. You and I are either a statue to sin or sensitive to sin. We're either a statue to sin or sensitive to sin. I was going to pick on Dave Reynolds because he's always right here, but Dave's not feeling well. We talked this morning, so I'm just going to, Dave, you're online. I think you are. I'll check. I'll ask Heather later. But I'm going to give an illustration with Dave. Say Dave's right there. And somebody creates a statue of Dave that is in every way an exact replica of him. You, you can hardly tell the difference between them. They look the same. It's a real-life statue. Now, you know that little tender spot underneath your arm? You ever get pinched there? I was trying to get Ian last night because I said I was going to be talking about this. He's so strong I couldn't get to him. But if I went to that statue of Dave and got it up underneath the arm and I just squeezed as hard as I could, how much is that statue going to jump? Not a bit. It's just a statue. A good one, but it's a statue. But if I go to, the, if I go to the, the flesh and blood, Dave Reynolds, he's tough. He, he tied Ruth Bontrager for the Tabasco drinking contest at a volunteer party, so he's tough. But I guarantee you, I get him up underneath the arm, he is going to jump. He's going to feel that. Salvation does not make us sinless, but salvation does make us sensitive to sin. One of the greatest signs of salvation is you now feel the pinch of conviction. Unfortunately, we can sometimes desensitize ourselves to sin, can we not? Where we stop feeling that conviction, and in effect, we become like that statue. A preacher was talking about how he was preaching at a conference one time, and after he was done with the sermon, a group of ladies came up to him, and they said, what do you think about us taking uh, our daughters to a, a certain concert? And this musician is completely ungodly. This is, not, this is not a statement against secular music. All kinds of music is a gift from God. But this musician was absolutely ungodly in what she sang and sang about, all that, how she presented herself. Do you think it would be okay for us to go to the concert? And this guy, being a little bit of a prophet, you're asking me if you should go to that concert. I'm wondering if you're going to hell. Now, he did that semi-serious. But he was making the point. When we desensitize ourselves to sin around us, we desensitize ourselves to sin within us. And that's ultimately where it comes from. Family, there are times in Christian history, no doubt, 
when people and the church have had an unhealthy obsession with sin. But there are also times when the church has an unhealthy complacency with sin. What sort of time do you think we live in? What do you think? When is the last time you wept over your sin? Or, or just in your own way, we're, we're just crushed in spirit, just devastated about it. Maybe your response is, well, I haven't fallen. Okay, let me correct a misunderstanding. Nobody falls. They slide. And they slide through pinch after pinch after pinch after pinch until they become a statue. And that slide is not a play structure. It's a death structure if you keep sliding. And maybe people make shipwreck and bring destruction into their lives and the lives of those they love because they don't weep until it's too late. They ignored pinch after pinch. This is a call for everybody here. What if we wept, at least we're, we're disturbed over small little things before the big thing? How about, why, why, why say you're married and you're having a conflict with your spouse. You can't say that day because you're mad on the way out the door, I love you because you're mad. Or why are we not always as careful about what we watch as we should be? Or how much we watch or how much we drink or the way we spoke to a sibling terribly or the little lies that we let sleep in and just the, the, the evangelistic exaggeration. What if we said, I want to feel those pinches? And now is the time to respond to that. I, I've got my, I, I got I got this is the longest sermon, COVID-19 time, by, by the way, just so you know, okay? Has the Holy Spirit pinched you recently? Has a friend pinched you? A family member pinched you? The Word of God pinched you? The Bible talks about the kisses of an enemy and the wounds of a friend, right? Has God pinched you today? If he has, it's nothing but love and grace. Because you'll either deal with your sin or your sin will deal with you. You say, I don't want to be a statue, Lord. I want to be sensitive. Well, it starts with confessing whatever you're feeling pinched about right now. That's it. That's the Holy Spirit doing that. And sensitivity to sin is actually a mark of spiritual maturity. You read about times of revival, man, it's not the carnal and unconverted and indifferent and superficial professing Christians who are all convicted. They're just statues. It's actually the people who are living far more for the Lord and walking in far more holiness and righteousness than those people who actually end up broken and repentant. How do you respond to a message like this? Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. It's a path that leads you away from destruction into the comfort of God's mercy. And I want to end with what Brad said, what Brad prayed in our Friday prayer morning, prayer, prayer time. He prayed something to the effect of, Lord, 
take us to mourning. Not so that we can stay there, but so what we, that we can get what's on the other side of it. The comfort of God's mercy. I'm going to ask Han and Tanisha to come. And we only did one song before uh, the service, before the sermon. And I think we have a few songs lined up. And I really want to ask you to respond. Don't be a statue. Feel that pinch, right? Feel that pinch. Don't, don't run the checkpoints because you keep on running checkpoints. You hit a bridge out and, and, you, and you go into a canyon. It ain't good. It is the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. It's the goodness of God. I want to ask Nick and Tina to be back in the far corner. If you need prayer during that time, would you go see them for prayer? Don't, don't, don't check out, all right? I know, it's been, I know it's been maybe for some an eternal sermon. Okay, you're so gracious. But I think the Spirit has something for us this morning. So let's stand and let's respond as he leads. Father, please move by your Spirit.